Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Hi, welcome back. How's your break? Um, you'll see some handouts going around. Um, there's a stapler somewhere in the building. If you want to want to staple them, they are numbered the pages, and there's there's just a little bit of information there. There's some resources for further exploration if there's some topics that come up today that you feel like you want more information about. Um, and also, I have, if anybody is interested, I'm not going to pass these out because I don't want to um, assume that you would be interested, but if you're looking for resources specifically around sexual violence and embodied healing practices, I have some resources here with my nonprofit. Um, and anyone who's involved, it's called the Breathe Network, anyone who's involved with the Breathe Network while they... Uh, very explicitly work with sexual violence and sexual trauma. They have a lot of expertise in trauma in general. Um, so you can look through those resources, whether online or there, um, if you are curious about other healing arts practices that could support trauma healing. Um, the other thing, I, I brought these, so whenever I do these, usually I'm doing these yoga trainings and I um, and sometimes they're longer sometimes they're like a f day to three days um, and so I bring these um, pieces of paper that people can color or draw on it's an adult it's from an adult coloring book um, which I guess just means maybe it's more complex patterns I'm not sure because it's like animals and flowers and very sweet things um, I usually bring them to my yoga trainings as a way for people who feel like the content starts to get a little bit too much or they're getting activated as a way they might be able to pull their attention back a little bit and resource themselves by even like tuning me out a little bit and doodling or drawing. Um, so I brought those, but I felt like as meditators, you may be able to just pull your attention back with your own kind of internal skills. Um, but they're here, so if you want to grab something during one of our breaks to this afternoon, feel free to take them and feel like you could draw or write notes or do whatever, or bring them to a young person who might appreciate them even more. Um, before we get into things, were there any questions that came up during the break or earlier in the morning that you would like to ask now? Or comments? Yeah. Um, you just really briefly mentioned it, but I really appreciate how, I exactly remember how you said it when Greg is asking about um, other people surrounding trauma survivors 
how he was more going along the lines of accessing resources for his own healing. But you mentioned something along the lines of um, just like noting the communication styles between them and the trauma survivor. And in my experience, I've had um, cancer a few times throughout my life. and. I actually kept it a secret for a couple of years when I was 20 because I uh, really didn't appreciate the way that people changed the way that they treated me. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, I felt really inauthentic. So that I just really wanted to bring that to light. That that is, um, and, it, and it goes along the lines of what you were saying with like asking, like how does this feel, or checking in, like how you're treating someone. You know, even you were talking about like having the hand on the back, but even just in communication styles, mm -hmm. I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's so important because um, depending how people respond to disclosures of any kind of experience, um, it can influence your choices about whether or not to continue talking about those topics with people. And if your experience is that the response was inauthentic or that you felt like you were being over attended to or people were being over cautious with you, you might want to actually draw a little bit of a boundary and, and keep that information to yourself, which completely makes sense. So um, it is so important to find a way to communicate with the people I think that are in your life in a way that um, allows for the conversation to grow and to ebb and flow and to check in and um, and to invite the person in your life to you know ask them questions like how is it when I check in with you um, does that feel good or do you want to kind of lead those conversations and I'll be receptive when you want to bring it up um, but sometimes people do appreciate like their partner or family member checking in with them from time to time you know how are things going I know it's been a couple of months or it's your anniversary of your diagnosis or your assault or the loss of your loved one um, and, and then wait for them to let you know if that feels like it's helpful or harmful or just less helpful to them. So yeah, the communication is important and the person who's navigating the trauma, their experience is always changing and the relationship to the experience is changing. So what worked for them in the aftermath of something sort of traumatic may not work three years later or 10 years later. So I think it is like an ongoing conversation the survivors having with themselves around how they relate to the event or experiences, um, but then important that the people who support them are also um, engaging in that ongoing conversation and not making assumptions about how they feel about it based on how they felt a couple of years ago or even a couple of months ago. Um, I remember I essentially asked my, um, I asked my parents to check in with me on my anniversary because they became very silent in the days leading up to it and the days afterwards. And it seemed to um, just further my sense of isolation. And then it would be like, oh, wait, do they not remember? Um, you know, that was the first thing, like, I can't believe they don't remember. This is such a big deal. They must have forgotten. Um, and then it was more, no, they have definitely remember, which is why even though they call me a lot, they stop calling for like the two weeks around that date. Um, so I just asked them if they would start calling me on my anniversary. And I was like, I know that that's really intense for you. 
Um, but I'd love for you to try it because it would really help me to know that you know that this is a big deal. And um, I've got a lot of tools and resources. So when you call, if I'm not in a space to talk, I won't answer the phone. And if I am in a space to talk, I'll answer the phone and it'll be really great for you to hear your daughter's voice. So, um, so sometimes it does require that that communication and, and asking the person, of course, what they need. And we don't always know how to ask that. So sometimes the person who's going through it um, has to, unfortunately, kind of guide the people around them. But there can also be some empowerment and being asking for what you need from other people. Um, and especially empowering when they deliver on your ask. So thank you for sharing that. Um, any other questions? Um, so my parents probably won't listen to this recording, right? <laughs> um, they've actually stopped calling. So it's one of those things where I'm like, do I want to do the like check-in again and do the gentle reminder? Um, is it worth it? Do I need it anymore? Maybe I don't. So it's, it's definitely, it's a process. Um, one of the things that is so important to remember about this work with trauma um, is that we're coming to it with a foundation of believing in people's innate resilience um, and that we believe that people are innately whole. Um, I think there can be a way in which we um, can question people's resilience, we can approach them as if they're broken, um, and, and trauma in and of itself can make people feel like a little bit broken or a lot broken. Like there's parts of them that they no longer have access to um, or they're not in control of themselves. Um, so what is so wonderful about a, any sort of holistic practice, whether it's meditation or holistic body work or naturopathy or any kind of medicine that kind of sees the whole person and all of these parts of themselves um, is that it's going to give somebody greater access to their fullest sense of self and they don't have to be compartmentalized and when they're getting holistic care um, their care provider acknowledges that they are a body and a mind and a spirit and all of these things are influencing each other and when we're working with one realm we're also uh, influencing those other realms as well. Um, and it's important because if we approach people seeing them as a whole person, seeing that they have this innate resilience, um, it allows them to have, I think, like a vaster sense of their own experience and maybe um, see their experience from a, from a bigger perspective or a larger, wider perspective in the sense that... Um, I think for some time in the period after trauma, um, a person could navigate the whole world from that place of being a trauma survivor, and that makes a lot of sense, and that's part of the process of rebuilding and repair. Um, but it can be very liberating when you can start to see that there's more to you than the trauma that was done. Um, or there's more to you than the illness or the experience of sexual assault. Um, but it, it can also take some time to get there. And um, my yoga teacher said one day in class, at the beginning of class, uh, remember that you are in a body, but you are not your body. And when she said that, it was like, for me, that was like the biggest deal because I 
even though I guess maybe I'd known that, um, to really like contemplate that after many years of what I've, what I would say now is kind of like an over identification with my body and like the need to always protect and nourish and care for and attend to and track my body, um, prevented me from, from seeing that there was a lot more to my experience. And so I probably would have, if I heard her say that like eight years ago or five years ago, maybe without doing a lot of work, I might've been really like pissed off. Like, no, I am my body and my body is so important and precious and all of these things. Um, but when I heard her say it on that day after some time and, um, it really felt like a big liberation to start to see beyond this experience um, of this event. And so um, I think that's an important reason why a meditation practice provides a really key tool for someone who's navigating healing um, where they can kind of pull back their attention and see themselves in a much more expansive way than the event or the experiences that have been so difficult for them. Um, the other thing is that with that sort of whole organism awareness that they'll develop through the meditation practice or other practices, um, they have an opportunity to learn that they can hold complementary states in their body or opposite states in their body. I usually use complementary um, because opposite can just frame it in a different way. Um, you can frame it however you like, but that there could be um, an experience of pain and discomfort in one area of the body and the experience of ease and connection in another area of the body or in the mind or with the people in the room. Um, and this is really important, I think, after trauma because people can go towards extremes where everything is really, really good and positive and there's this sense of like high and euphoria when things are going well or things are, everything is bad and really dark and difficult and overwhelming. Um, and learning to kind of hold both in the body and in the mind and spirit, I think, is going to help to restore people's resiliency. Um, and so we get to practice that while we're sitting, um, being with all of the different things that are coming up. And then we get to hopefully bring it into the harder areas of like navigating living in the world and being in relationships and um, just being in life. So um, the other thing kind of connected to that is learning to the capacity to kind of track your own experience also allows people to notice how their body does attempt to deliver um, resourcing and support. Um, and I we'll maybe talk a little bit more about it, but one of the things that's pretty important in the somatic experiencing technique is um, noticing your own self-soothing practices. Um, and a lot of them for us are very, very subtle and maybe we've never noticed them until we were asked to notice them. So one example, I think a really common one is like a little bit of a sway through the torso. And sometimes we sway when we're like, taking in some powerful information or we're feeling a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, there's a thousand different reasons why we might sway. Um, but when we're doing the SE technique with other people, we'll actually, if I'm working with somebody, if they start to do some self-soothing, um, maybe they're just like rubbing their arm, 
I'll call their attention to that in a way that is like completely judgment free and and I'll frame it as something like, oh, I noticed that really like uh, gentle touch you're giving to your arm. How does it feel to make contact with yourself that way? And then they might be like, oh, I didn't even notice I'm doing that. And then you might have them just hang out with, you know, if you're comfortable, maybe just staying with that motion and noticing what that feels like and what does it actually create in your experience. Um, and so seeing that there are these ways in which our body is attempting to deliver us some self-soothing and some support um, and not shaming them or feeling weird about them because sometimes people can, we have, I don't know, like a bizarre expectation that we should always be like constricted or sitting up tall or that movement isn't natural or that any of these techniques are bizarre, but they're, they're totally not and they're really they're cool ways to notice what the body's doing for us and then it's interesting to go okay so what about right now is making my body want to do that self-soothing technique um that's like another step and you don't have to take that step but it can be interesting too um and i think it's important to identify what are our self-soothing techniques because then we can intentionally call upon them when things start to get a little bit activated or a little bit uncomfortable. And a lot of the self-soothing is really subtle. So um, sometimes when I, when there is meditation, um, when I'm teaching meditation within my yoga classes, and um, I'll even invite people to explore a little bit of just like swaying with their torso and noticing what that feels like until they find that place that feels just right to kind of settle but to know that they could come back to a little bit of that sway if things feel um, like they're getting stuck. Um, the other thing that's cool about those tools is when there's other situations outside of the practice where there may be some discomfort or um, agitation or fear, if a person knows what their techniques are, they could actually use those in those other environments. So, um, for example, going to the doctor for a lot of people who've experienced trauma and the whole spectrum of kinds of trauma, there may have been a doctor involved or a nurse or a medical provider at some point. And it can be a place where um, people's traumas get triggered. Um, so I know like whenever I go to the doctor, um, any kind of doctor actually, um, I wiggle my toes like through my whole session, whatever, whatever is happening. It's like the dentist, the gynecologist, there's just a lot of toe wiggling that happens. And I'll even tell them, um, particularly like the gynecologist, because they're closer to my toes, like, oh, just so you know, um, everything's okay, but I will wiggle my toes during this process because that helps me just stay in my body because I know that if I don't keep just like a little bit of awareness um, that I could easily leave, like during a pelvic exam, I could go away very quickly. So, and I wanna stay. Um, and that little self-soothing technique for me is really helpful, um, as is just like swaying. So just something to notice even as we're here together, if there are little things that you do, um, that it's really cool that your body is like, oh, I want to comfort you from the inside out. Um, your hand was up. Yeah, I'm just, I'm thinking about fidgeting. I was just going to Yeah, that. and what is the difference between self-soothing and, yeah, because agitation, there's yeah. visual cues for agitation that yeah. you see in fidgeting that yeah. isn't really soothing. Yeah, um, I think it's really person-specific, right. so you'd have to be in conversation with the person. Fidgeting. And there is a lot of shame yeah. around it. 
Um, and it's, again, this expectation that we can all sit still, um, particularly like this idea that children could sit still in a school for a full day, um, that they wouldn't be fidgeting or acting out is kind of bizarre. So um, with my work, again, one-on-one -on -one with somebody, I'll just be curious about the thing that they're doing. And sometimes they're reporting back about its effect on them, um, gives some clues about what the where the self soothing is coming from or why why it's coming up. Why is the fidgeting coming up? Yeah, I think that's the key is the awareness because I think people fidget without the awareness. Yes, right? yeah, and so calling their awareness to it is is really really yeah. cool. Without stop. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and even sometimes we'll call their awareness to it and. Um, ask them to slow down the movement and right. see what that feels like, um, how it changes things, um, or speed it up. Usually it's a slowing down. Um, and one of the reasons we do that is because um, trauma is like a really intense experience where like time gets very compressed in a person's mind. So um, a lot of what we're doing in in the somatic experiencing technique is kind of stretching time out again um, because otherwise if we keep it really condensed it's too much to process too fast so we stretch it out um, and work with just little bits and pieces incrementally and even like slowing down motions you know if I see somebody going like that at some point while we're talking and that's like a consistent pattern in the way that they're, you know, describing their experience, I might have them slow that movement down a lot. I might have them make it really, really big, explore standing, um, explore other movement with it, and some very interesting things will emerge. Um, one of Peter, Peter, like he's my pal, um, one of Peter's uh, ideas is that there are these incomplete motor processes that the body remembers and until we're able to successfully complete them we may be navigating a lot of um, post-traumatic stress symptoms um, and so even though we're not able to go back in time and undo the things that have occurred or the way that they went um, the idea is that the nervous system doesn't know if it's happening in the past it, it experiences experiences it as this is what's coming up right now um, it's almost like the there's a it's almost like there was a pause button in a way during the traumatic event and we're unpausing it and we're uh, renegotiating how it went and for many many people and you can look at his books and the research around it that renegotiation process even though it doesn't undo the past um, can help to significantly reduce people's symptoms. So it may be, you know, the renegotiation could be saying something that you wish you had said. Um, one of the techniques is to have, uh, he'll call it like a benevolent protector. So being back in that space or that experience and inviting, imagining um, there was somebody else with you and it could be your adult self is now with you as a child while you're going through that or that when you're in the doctor's office, your best friend or your partner was sitting next to you, um, or you said something to the person who harmed you that you wish you'd been able to say. Um, there's a lot of different ways we can renegotiate it. Sometimes it's very like 
fantastical. Like if you could have any superpower as you're back seeing that scene, what would be the superpower you would have had? And then letting the person go with that. Um, and when we start to go in that direction, it does um, seem to activate a lot of unprocessed um, emotions and imagery and thoughts and behaviors. And, um, and it does seem to have this way in which a person is able to have this um, kind of, uh, is compensary the word? Is compensary a word? Mm -hmm. A compensary experience, like the renegotiation of something um, that when they're done going through that process, the trauma is potentially um, a little bit uh, less intense for them or they have this new um, relationship to their memory of it. And, and I don't know, are any of you familiar with EMDR? Um, I think that EMDR can sometimes be like that. I think, I mean, all of these practices are so person-specific between the practitioner and the person receiving the practice. Um, so I can't say what they're all like, but I think EMDR can have that effect when you, depending who you're working with and depending what comes up for you, where you can, in a way, have a, a different sense of the traumatic memory and start to see things that maybe... Um, you didn't recall seeing during the event itself. Um, sometimes it feels like it's more like a dream or it's fantasy. Sometimes it feels like you're suddenly aware of all this energetic presence that was there that you didn't recognize during the trauma. Um, and whether any of that was actually present at the event, <coughs> it still can become a resource that you had this experience of going back into the trauma and viewing it in a really different way. Um, so an example would be, and um, I feel like a lot of my examples are, are my own, so I apologize, but those are the ones that I know really, really well. Um, but like when I went back to my rape and in an EMDR session, um, I saw all of these um, different energies that I didn't see during the event itself. Um, and I also saw a deer that actually pointed, like guided me out. I was in the woods, so guided me out of the woods. And it had been this like big question for me for a long time. Like, I don't even know how I got out. Like, how did I figure that out? There was, like, no path. Um, so when I went back, I saw, I had this image, right, of this deer that I was following. So when I, after the MDR session, from then on, of course it doesn't undo the event, but I had a different experience because the deer was there and so were some other things that I won't go into. But the experience of the trauma was that I was completely isolated and abandoned by the universe. But then I go back with this EMDR session and all of a sudden I'm like, oh no, I totally wasn't alone. There were all of these resources that were actually um, assisting me in escaping. So, um, so it completely changed my relationship to the trauma. It didn't like undo it. I wasn't like clear, like you're good, you're clear of all your symptoms now. Um, but it, it definitely decreased the intensity and it um, it challenged that idea I'd had that had been so painful that I had been like abandoned somehow. Um, 
And even with the somatic experiencing, I was given that superpower invitation, which I thought was really weird, but then I just went with it, um, where I chose flight as my superpower. And then I like transformed into an eagle. And then I was able to like pick my perpetrator up with my talons. And it was really an incredible experience. And what they were having me do during the session was like feel my talents. And like I could feel all of this intense energy. I could feel like my wings. I could see the whole scene. And I was like squeezing on the perpetrator, which was really cool and bizarre. Um, and then I dropped him into a volcano. And like none of this is like a premeditated plan for what I would have done. It's all just like then what happens? And all they're doing in these sessions is really like what's happening now and there's a lot of like silence and waiting for what the body will naturally want to do which is why i think it resonates for a lot of people that have like a <coughs> contemplative practice is there's like a trust in this innate wisdom of the body um to give you some cues and to give you some direction and so in that waiting, it went from like, this is so weird that you're asking me to do this superpower thing and I don't believe it. And like I told her, I'm like, I don't believe it. And I'm not a superhero. And she was like, let's just go with it and see what it feels like. And then I got super into it. And um, and I dropped this guy off in, <laughs> in a volcano, and which is really kind of intense and kind of <laughs> creepy that I did that. But I was an eagle and I was in my experience. And what is really wild is that about a week after that session, that volcano um, in Ecuador became active again and was starting to explode. So I thought it was like a really cool experience for me to feel like I'd had this intense thing that was just, you know, in my mind, right? But, um, but it still is another part of like reframing how I view the experience. Um, and so we aren't trying to like erase people's memories. We can't, and there's no need to do that because these experiences, um, when held and resourced can make our lives richer, but we're making them more, more tolerable so that we can hold those experiences and also have space for positive experience as well. Um, and I think you said this in your podcast yesterday, um, <laughs> when I was listening, um, you know, when we like numb ourselves to, you know, like we don't want to feel, um, we maybe don't want to feel anything, uh, negative. So we're like really trying to only feel the positive. It becomes really hard. Um, if we're numbing ourselves, we are going to actually end up missing out on all of it. We don't get to pick and choose. Uh, necessarily um, that will be available to these kinds of experiences and unavailable to others um, if we put up that boundary it, it doesn't really let anything in um, so learning how to like build a body or organism that can hold all of it is really um, I think what meditation offers um, as well as some other practices um, any questions yeah, I find that so interesting because historically, when someone's coming to emergency with trauma stuff, we talk about it and then we talk about it, and then we like I'm thinking about firemen that come in that are rescued burnt children, so they would come and see us and we would talk to them about the experience, and then they'll come back next week and they talk about it again because a child had died or whatever. 
And now they're sort of saying that we probably made it worse in some ways because we put the pathway down, the neural pathway, because that's put down by intensity and the volume of the same thing going over and over. And this would go on and on and probably push them further into post-traumatic stress disorder. But in fact, if, if something like that had been used, where they're empowered, where they have a different ending, where they're in control of the end, it, never it doesn't change what happened, how much better we would have yeah. done because these people are still affected 10 years later. Yeah. They still have them coming back, still talking about the event. Yeah. And still actually, you know, strengthening that pathway of trauma again. Yeah. Every time they, because it's real to them. They yeah. smell the burning flesh, everything is real yeah. to them. They're so specific in what they tell Yeah. Them. Yeah. And the senses are um, very heightened during mm. trauma. So that can be. Um, a real trigger for people because they have such a strong like uh, sensory memory of what was happening during the event um, so if they're walking down the street and they smell something or they hear a song um, or there's a texture um, or a taste that reminds them of the trauma it can be a real trigger but but also that sensory awareness can be can be used as a resource once they figure out where where their sensory strengths are and um, what um, sensory channels are resourcing to them. Um, I know a lot of the. I used to work in uh, hospitals uh, as a as a medical advocate. So when somebody was sexually assaulted, um, they would report to an emergency room. Then I would get a page and go and meet that person there and go with them through the process. And we would bring them sort of like a self-care like toolkit, basically, that had um, some essential oils and sprays. It had like granola bars. It had juice and water. Um, it had, we had this thing in Chicago, um, scarves, uh, which would work probably in Canada too because it's cold but there was a woman who started a group called Threads of Compassion and she basically it was a nonprofit, and people would just make scarves um, and send them to her and then she would distribute them to all the rape crisis centers and we would bring the scarves to the emergency room because it was usually freezing in these hospitals and the survivors usually just wearing like one of those little gowns um, so that would be like another thing, like a tactile thing that they could hold onto or they could wrap around themselves for comfort. So the senses can end up being um, really powerful and um, useful for people. Um, and for the work with children, uh, Peter's done a lot of work with kids uh, that, again, years later, you know, renegotiating birth, traumatic birth with three, four, and five-year-olds. And you can watch these videos and see what he's doing with them, and it's very, very limited talk. It's a lot more of him <laughs> attuning to different like behaviors that they're exhibiting through their body and drawing them out a little bit. So um, people are very, very resilient. I have a friend who works with uh, people that are, she's telling you about some people that she's working with that are in their 80s that are just now um, wanting to do some trauma healing work from childhood. And she said it's incredible. It's like they're being like born again at 80 into this like post-traumatic way of being in the world. So I think it's always important to remember that regardless of how long it's been, like the healing wants to happen and it's ready at any point. Um, so... 
I have a quote about trauma by Freud, which um, is kind of a, a problematic person and has some ideas that I don't uh, completely ascribe to. But this quote about trauma, I think, is very simple and a, uh, just a powerful way of thinking about it. I don't know if I included it in your packets. Maybe I did. But um, he said, trauma is a breach in the protective barrier against stimulation leading to feelings of overwhelming helplessness. Um, and so thinking about this, this breach in our, our personal space, which we all have, and it can be like an energetic breach or an emotional mental breach or a physical breach um, that uh, basically um, kind of takes away our sovereignty and our sense of being... Um, an integrated whole self, that somebody has come into this place that um, people should not be coming into. Um, and so thinking about this breach, um, we'll talk a little bit about um, how that breach can then influence the brain and the nervous system um, and lead to a specific set of symptoms. Um, I mentioned a bit earlier a couple examples of trauma, but I wanted to just make sure I didn't leave anything out, even though there's a lot I'm going to leave out because it's pretty wide, but um, sexual violence and motor vehicle accidents are commonly thought of as uh, being traumatic experiences. Of course, also war. Um, also witnessing um, horrific events or witnessing violence can be very, very traumatic. That's an area that I think is... Uh, under-attended to in our society, um, and there's a lot of people that witness events um, that are horrific or violent, and because it didn't happen to them, they don't feel like they can necessarily ask for resources or ask for help. Um, also, intergenerational or historical trauma, um, surgery, um, emotional neglect and verbal abuse, um, birth trauma for not only the baby but also for the parent or parents um, and the unexpected loss of a loved one or just the loss of a loved one um, can be traumatic so even though we try to uh, I think like minimize some of these things or normalize them um, something like surgery I just read some I don't know the number it was like hundreds of thousands of surgeries are happening and every year in the United States. There's a lot of surgery happening. Um, and there's a lot of people who are now reporting that there's some things that don't go well during the surgery, either before, during, or after, um, that are now seeking out trauma healing um, for what happened during a routine surgery. Um, and I think what is interesting about that realm um, is that a lot of these surgeries or procedures are, you know, freely entered into. We're doing them um, because they're going to promote maybe greater health, but it doesn't mean that they still can't have a, a negative impact on us or go very poorly and require some additional resources. Um, it's the same minor surgery. It's any surgery done on anyone but yourself. 
Yeah. Minor surgeries, any surgery, surgery done. Surgery that's done on yeah. the yeah. It's always mine. I'll be okay. Yeah. Hey, you'll be fine. Yeah. Until it's your turn. Yeah. But, you know, the and doctors, they're the worst. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's like the body uh, wants to protect us at all times, and it doesn't want to be opened up. It doesn't want to be cut into. Um, and even though we know intellectually, oh yeah, this mole's got to go, um, or you know, um, whatever it may be, or I have to have the surgery because I have this illness, and this is going to help me. Um, the body doesn't know that, and the nervous system doesn't know that, um, and so it can be very, very uh, difficult for people. And um, I know that. My somatic experiencing teacher says, you know, if we're working with someone who's entering into surgery, that we really want to increase, we want to prepare them for it. We want to do a lot of like visualization of how it's going to go, figure out who are their people that are going to be around them to help care for them afterwards, um, to get them into as optimal of health going into it as possible, whether it's through rest or nourishment or exercise or other self-care practices, and then to basically double the recovery time that their doctor says they'll need. Because sometimes doctors will say, oh, you'll be up and ready to go. You can be back at work in 48 hours after you've given birth or whatever. Um, and maybe with that, maybe you want to like not even quadruple. The number is too great. Um, so stretching out the time around the process because, yeah, it doesn't always go so great for people. I think I saw a hand somewhere. Yeah. That's um, does the trauma in surgery specifically come from the whole process or can it, can it come from when you're under general anesthetic and you're not even conscious, you can still be traumatized in that moment? Like, yes. Is that where the trauma is occurring? The trauma can happen in any of those areas and, and then some. Um, so there are people who um, feel that the, the, while they were under anesthesia was when they were traumatized. Um, and so there, there is research out there. Um, you could look up probably just like somatic experiencing and surgery, and you might be able to find some resources around it. Um, there's a section in the training, there's almost like a day in the training um, that's dedicated to surgery. And a lot of it is about what's happening while we're unconscious. Um, which I think some people are like, what? Like, if you weren't conscious, how could that be traumatic? But the body remembers. There's that, um, there's a book by Bessel van der Kolk called The Body Keeps the Score. So conscious or not conscious, we do have a bodily memory of being opened up or violated or whatever may happen. So there's ways in which um, different kinds of therapists and practices will work with somebody um, to, to go back to that and um, to recreate that scene in a way that allows them to feel like they were more um, supported and, and decrease the sense of it being a traumatic experience. Um, the Explicit memory, um, and if there's psychotherapists in the room, you can correct me on this. I think explicit memory isn't available until around like 18 months of age. So it doesn't mean that we're not remembering. We don't remember these things or that these events that happen to us up until 18 months of age don't matter. Um, they do often show up for people and um, can show up many, many, many years or many decades later in life. Um, so yeah, reframing not only how we think about like being unconscious and what happens to us, um, but also thinking about like 
infants, real infants, and what their experiences and how it might influence um, their health and wellness moving forward um, with this idea in mind that they are so resilient too. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And there's, some, there's, there's a lot of conversation out there around the different kinds of drugs that are more trauma sensitive than other drugs. And I haven't focused a lot on that, um, but I know that there is that conversation out there that there's certain drugs that will allow for a greater sense of presence during the experience than others. And they see like a correlation, um, and it's not that helpful because I'm not naming the drug, but there is a correlation between some very commonly administered drug that puts you out um, and people reporting um, post-traumatic stress after surgery. Ketamine. So, ketamine, yeah. Ketamine. Yeah. We give it to, we put racing horses down with ketamine, yet we give it to kids. Well, that's used as a GA? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's up until, you know, I don't know if it was like maybe in the 90s, maybe it was the 80s in the United States, I don't know how it is in Canada, um, but babies weren't given any like anesthesia for medical procedures. So um, that was, they were, it was believed that they don't feel pain. Um, which is really bizarre. It's because not myelin sheath isn't developed at that time, so we believe that we couldn't transfer the nerve impulses up to yeah. the brain to be perceived as pain. Yeah. And then a guy, an, uh, an Indian guy in um, America, said, no, that's not right with his experiments, and then all hospitals had to have a pain management yeah. for the kids. Yeah. It's unreal, isn't it? And they yeah. wouldn't remember it if they had it anyway. Yeah. So all circumstitions were never done with anesthesia. Right, right. And a lot of other procedures. Um, I found out I had a spinal tap. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. And I'm asking my mom all these questions about it. And then she's getting kind of like worked up about it, feeling like I'm asking too many questions. And now am I questioning her parenting and her choices, which I wasn't. And I was like, that's a really big deal, mom. Like, and I'm of course like, oh my God, I'm kind of overloaded right now. I think I'm having like a reaction to this event. And she's like, well, don't worry. Um, we didn't use any anesthesia. So you didn't really like, we had the best, like, best doctor we could get. He was so good, he didn't even need to, like, numb you before that process. And then I was like, I just finished my SE weekend on um, surgery and anesthesia and postnatal care. And I was like, oh, my God, this is even worse than I thought. And then I'm like, wait, maybe everything that's wrong with me is because of that. But it's not. It's not. But um, but it was just like an interesting. It's an interesting thing. So um, if you, what, that's the interesting thing about doing the like, some of those kinds of trainings is as you're listening, you're like, oh wait, maybe that's me. That's yeah. kind of me too. That one too. That I have all of these. Um, so yeah, but the there's so much more information out there now, and people are. Um, thinking about these things in a much more holistic way. And there's a really cool article, actually, if you're interested in um, trauma-informed surgery. Do you know Bo Forbes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Bo Forbes, B-O. Um, maybe I put her on your resources list. Um, F-O-R-B-E-S. She wrote a really incredible article about... Um, going into surgery in a very like present and um, trauma-informed way. Um, she's had a lot of surgeries and 
Um, a few of them didn't go very well and a few of them were actually harmful and she had to go back in and have more surgery to undo what was done. But she wrote this really long article on entering surgery, like doing like a mindfulness practice around her surgery and its impact on um, how her recovery went afterwards and um, how powerful it was for her to work with a team of medical providers who would actually support that kind of mindfulness around surgery. So she's trying to do some work to bring this knowledge more and more into um, the medical field, which is really, really cool. Um, so I want to share a little bit about some of the statistics related to um, trauma and childhood trauma in particular, because again, we can sort of think that it it's a, just a couple of events, and maybe we don't know anyone who these things happen to. We've heard that it's out there, but we don't know. Um, people in our yoga classes or meditation practice or immediate community have never told us they've experienced any of these events, so we might assume that they haven't happened. Um, first of all, it's not strongly encouraged um, over the border to talk about um, <coughs> the, like trauma. Uh, and the things that have happened to you. It's usually these kinds of things, um, you're encouraged to kind of keep it to yourself and um, toughen up and um, be independent and, and move forward. Um, I don't know how it is in Canada. It's probably better. <laughs> but, um, pardon me? I would say similar. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's changing because people are seeing the sort of collateral damage of... Uh, telling people to just stop talking about their problems or to get over it um, or to keep it to themselves and how then what happens when people either internalize the trauma um, or externalize it and um, take that energy that's really bound up and unprocessed and project it onto other people. Um, but a couple of years ago, there was a study called the ACE study. Have any of you heard of the ACE study? Yeah. Yeah, so it's ACE, and it's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, um, and it's very, very comprehensive, and it was a collaboration between the CDC and um, the Center for Disease Control and Kaiser Permanente, and they surveyed 17,000 people, voluntarily participated in this survey, and um, they asked some questions about different categories of childhood trauma, which I'll tell you about. And 63% um, of the people who studied it, who participated in the study had at least one experience, one category. And a lot of people had multiple categories. Um, and those categories included a variety of things, but what's particularly interesting is over 20% of those 17,000 people had experienced three or more of the categories of childhood trauma. Um, they would say three or more ACEs is kind of how they refer to it. Um, and that included 11% um, of them had experienced emotional abuse. 28% uh, had experienced physical abuse. And you don't need to memorize these numbers. If you want them, I can just send this information to you also. Um, I can send actually everything I'm talking about to Michael and he can send it to you. 21% um, had experienced <laughs> sexual abuse. 13% um, had witnessed their mothers being treated violently. 27% grew up with someone in their household who was using alcohol, alcohol or drugs. 
20% grew up with a mentally ill person in the household, and there's a number of other ACEs that they identified. Um, and what's interesting is that they found that the ACEs accounted for um, anywhere from one-half to two-thirds of serious problems with drug use in the people that they had surveyed, um, which is why it's so um, important when we're thinking about um, addiction to also be thinking about trauma and that people who are working with addiction have a strong understanding of trauma and um, are exploring um, what may have happened to the person that would have led to the development of the addiction. Um, but what they saw is the more categories of trauma that a person experienced, the greater the likelihood they had in a variety of um, areas of illness or disease. And it's all charted out. So you can see sort of the correlation of this many ACEs, led to this, this many ACEs led to this. Um, but what they saw is with the more amount of ACEs, these childhood traumatic events, some of which we often don't think about as trauma, like we haven't often talked about emotional neglect as trauma. We haven't talked about being raised um, by a parent or a caregiver who's an addict necessarily as trauma. Um, or um, there was 5% of them had a parent who was incarcerated and that, that had a really big effect on them. So they saw an increase in alcoholism, depression, um, illicit drug use, heart disease, liver disease, uh, risk for intimate partner violence, STDs, smoking, suicide attempts, um, and unintended pregnancy. So they saw that there were all of these um, short and long-term health outcomes that were directly correlated to this childhood experience of abuse and neglect. Um, and it's just another reason why we're, our like medical and health and wellness fields are um, increasingly, I think, interested in, in trauma and people's past in a way that they weren't before. And this study um, has woken a lot of people up. Now it's like, Every conference I go to or presentation I hear, somebody talks about the ACE study. Um, and for people who have like a mindfulness practice or a body-based practice, none of this seems like very radical or hard to believe. Um, but for people who haven't always seen things that way, this, this is like a really big deal and it could potentially influence for the better um, our medical system. Um, some of the symptoms of, I'm going to list some of the symptoms of trauma. Um, if I wanted to list all of them, we would be here for like weeks upon weeks, and I probably wouldn't still touch on all of them because every person responds in their own way. Um, so I'm just going to mention a few of the more common ones um, that we see more often. Um, and these symptoms, while they can be symptoms of trauma, they're also just like responses to living in the world. So if as I'm talking about these things, you're like, oh my gosh, I just checked off every single one of those, um, that's okay because a lot of them are um, being experienced by a lot of different people, right? It's just that maybe with a trauma survivor, they're experiencing more of them and at a much higher intensity. And they're experiencing these things in a way that it disrupts with their like functioning in the world. So there may be a lot of people that have, like one of them is um, 
Chronic lower back pain is really commonly seen in trauma survivors, particularly um, people who survived interpersonal violence. But there's also a lot of people in America with chronic lower back pain from like being in a car or being at a desk or being on a sofa all of the time. So they may have no history or correlation with trauma, um, but but those are there. Um, yeah. Just before you start, like, yeah. um, what's your view on as far as like the types of trauma and like does it matter? Uh, do you look at that, say, someone that's witnessed you know, a mass murder or something compared to someone who was just uh, neglected emotionally or something like that? Well, yeah, it's really person-specific, so... Um, but you just treat them, it doesn't, like... I would just respond to whatever it is that they're presenting mm-hmm. with. And, of course, like, yeah, knowing their their story and what yeah. the meaning is attached to the story is definitely important. I wouldn't just say, like, I want to know your symptoms, but I don't need to know anything else. Because yeah. um, a lot of the, like, re-empowerment and renegotiation um, and understanding of those symptoms as really um, natural responses to what they went through... Um, is easy, more easily identified when, when we do know a little bit about what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but does it doesn't, like, I just hear arguments of, oh, well, like I was saying, oh, it's more, it's, someone's going to suffer more trauma than someone else. Oh, yeah. You know this is, I'm so glad you're saying this. This is, like, my favorite topic ever. Um, <laughs> my opinion, I just, I'd like to go, okay, sure, you should know about the, whatever happened, I guess, yeah. to help the treatment, but... To me, trauma is trauma. Yeah. So, what's your take on that? I totally agree. Um, I think that we've created a hierarchy Mm -hmm. in our understanding of trauma, which has, like, neglected a lot of people's needs and leads to a lot of self-blame and shame of, well, um, I didn't go to war. All I did was have, like, a really terrible surgery and... So why am I so messed up? It could have been so much worse what happened to me. Or um, we see with like people who experience sexual violence, maybe they were um, being sexually harassed. It was verbal sexual harassment, but there was never physical contact. But they have all of the same symptoms of somebody who maybe was raped. And because of the hierarchy in our society and the way we talk about a lot of these things, they have like a whole extra layer of shame and self-blame around what is wrong with them, that they have such intense symptoms when it could have been so much worse. So we try to see it as it's not about like the event necessarily, it's about how did the person uniquely experience that event? What resources were or were not available after the event? What was the relationship to the person or the environment? Like there's all of these other factors that matter um, just as much as like the nature of what happened to them. So I don't, I don't think that it's um, appropriate to say that the trauma of this is much worse than the trauma of that because we just don't know people's different experiences. And there's people who have been sexually assaulted that don't feel feel like it was traumatic, but like they had other things in their life that were way worse. You know, and then there's other people, bless you, bless you, who are um, experienced emotional neglect as children, and they're really struggling to to deal with that and get through it. So it's so unique to each person's 
like constitution and their family and their community and their resources. Um, so I try to avoid um, like putting them on a scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and of course, like when you're doing one-on-one -on -one work with somebody, it may be that you're going to attend differently to somebody who is um, based on the nature of their story. Um, but the story or the event doesn't lead to like a clear outcome for what they'll present with. So it's a clear issue in medical, like as far as how, is it, is it a problem, say psychologists, psychiatrists in that? I'm not in that field, so I don't know. Well, I guess it doesn't even. I don't know. Word on this tip. 